Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This afternoon, we'll be hearing from Dr. Lauren Tracekowski. Dr. Lauren Tracekowski is an American living in Birmingham, England. She started her education at Boston University studying international relations. While completing her undergraduate degree, she studied American foreign policy at IWP for one summer. After completing her degree, Dr. Tracekowski moved to Washington, D.C. to work for the U.S. Federal Emergency Management Agency to contribute to the Hurricane Katrina response and recovery from within the Office of International Affairs. Dr. Tracekowski then moved to the UK to do an MA in International Studies, Globalization, and Governance. Later, she completed a PhD in Global Ethics, focusing on the research she will present to us this afternoon. While still working on her PhD, Dr. Tracekowski taught modules on bioethics, contemporary ethics, politics in the state, professional ethics, and medical ethics at institutions around the West Midlands of the United Kingdom. Dr. Tracekowski now teaches at Aston University as an associate professor. Her main teaching is in business, business ethics and ethics in a crisis. Dr. Tracekowski, welcome and thank you for joining us this afternoon. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I'm very excited to be presenting uh, to the Institute of World Politics. So I'm going to start. This is my, uh, my first Zoom presentation. I usually use MS Teams, so bear with me as we go. I'm going to share my screen that's what i have to do bear with okay you should be seeing my presentation very good. Uh, again, my name is Dr. Teresa Kowski, and today I'll provide an overview of my recently published monograph, Ethics, Law, and Natural Hazard, The Moral Imperative for Intervention Post-Disaster. Um, as one would expect, I have a PowerPoint presentation. I don't know if you guys are sick of them, I apologize. I'll try to use it only to remind us of the structure of my talk. And that st structure will proceed as follows. First, I'll start with the background, just a little bit on me, uh, where the book came from, an overview of the argument I present. For this audience, I thought it best to concentrate on just war principles as the foundation of a policy. Also considering this audience, I expect there will be many objections to my argument and proposal. That's okay. I will preempt some of your objections and go through what I see to be the central criticisms and give you my responses to those. And then if I've missed any, or if you have queries about what I've proposed more generally, we can discuss those in questions and answers. So we start with background. Sorry, I'm trying to manage two different screens and it's not working as smoothly as I thought it would. Okay, so a bit of background on me. Um, I grew up in New Jersey, moved to Boston to do my undergrad. As Hannah said, I went to Boston University. My supervisor and mentor was Angelo Cotavilla. I don't know if any of you would have had him or if he guest lectured at all at IWP because he's the one that pushed me to uh, attend. Um, and then I took American foreign policy at IWP, I think with Dr. Tierney. Um, and I understand that he is still there. So that's very very exciting for me. I have a mixed background, international relations, academically and professionally, global ethics, and a bit of that time with FEMA than had mentioned. Where I am now? Well, I'm the equivalent of an associate professor. I'm the director of external engagement with the Crisis Center at Aston. Please look us up. Um, I teach, I write on disaster ethics related topics and pedagogy. This book, my central thesis and my talk today, is the outcome of that mixed background. Uh, it's intended as an interdisciplinary approach to intervention post-natural hazard, so it's not going to be specifically to security or politics or ethics. So if we can take that interdisciplinary approach. Slide. So ethics, law, and natural hazards. I'll kick us off with a scenario. Just keep this in mind as I go through the talk. It's a hypothetical situation in order to remove any bias or influence from those who have participated in actual response. I also like to include a little disclaimer. I'm gonna sound a little bit flippant. 
It's how I describe death and destruction, but I'm just getting through it. I have to be able to engage with this kind of disaster situation. Stoically, don't mistake that for me not caring. Okay, a tsunami has hit Colombo, the capital of Sri Lanka. There were faults in the tsunami alert system, and whilst the government had some notice, it was not enough time for them to evacuate from the city. The president and most of the parliament have been killed. Now with this, I'm suggesting a very simplistic example of when a national government may be unable to ask for assistance and is maybe struggling to support its citizens. It's not the government's fault. Unable to support, that's the keyword key there. Now, instead of the government officials being killed, imagine instead that the government refuses international assistance. It knows what the international community and the offers of assistance did to its economy the last time there was a tsunami. And the government does not want to have foreign aid workers in the country for another 10 years. No, we'll do it alone. But so much of the infrastructure and supplies have been wiped out. This is again, imagine. They refuse international assistance, but entire communities are falling through the cracks. So this is a country unwilling to accept assistance. So with this, my thesis or argument to account for both scenarios is as follows. We should develop international policies for intervention and the use of military force to provide assistance in very specific and rare cases when a national government is either unable or unwilling to provide assistance to its people in the aftermath of a large scale natural hazard even without consent from the affected government. And this should be based on our human right to welfare. That was the scenario. Now let's talk a little bit about the gap in the literature and the gap in the policy. Taking it apart and you'll see the gap in the middle. Um, I think we need to fill the, this gap. Let's start with natural hazards. Why do I say natural hazards and not natural disasters? Well, disasters are not natural. Disasters occur because of underlying socio-political economic conditions coupled with a trigger event. A natural hazard is a natural event, a weather event, a seismological event, a tsunami, a volcano that possibly triggers a disaster. I'm interested in natural hazards as the trigger event because of their absence from international internet intervention literature, think R2P. When we talk about natural hazard response, I wanted to make sure we were all on the same page that sometimes force is sometimes used or rather called upon in response to a natural hazard. In the US, we have the National, National Guard, which may be deployed. Many of the international emergency management agencies have their roots in civil protection. Most recently, for example, Indian military forces were deployed to help with COVID response. I'm not suggesting that possible military control over natural hazard responses should be the way forward. I'm not condoning the suspension of normal rules of practice in what Walzer defines as supreme emergency situations. Instead, I want us to recognize that using military forces in natural hazard response is something that happens. And that if we plan for its use, proper preparedness is key to ethical response, then it will not be a suspension of normal rules, but rather a well thought out use of rules. Next piece in the puzzle, my the gap, humanitarian intervention. Uh, traditionally, we can start from the understanding that humanitarian interventions occur for reasons of international stability and or individual rights. Let's talk about international stability. Walter argues that the reason for carrying out an intervention should primarily be to restore or protect international stability. By this, he means maintenance of the international state system and the need for peace and security within it. Intervention to stem the advance of violence from one country to the region and the world may be justified given the right conditions. On individual rights, those are our obligations to other humans to stop suffering, which shocks the conscience of humanity. Those are then secondary, supportive reasons for an intervention justified on the grounds of international stability or according to Walzer, that is. I'll return to human suffering as a reason for intervention when I discuss the human right to welfare. Now, I agree that intervention should be an exception to normal practice and not our go-to method of stopping injustice. Furthermore, we cannot intervene for all human rights abuses as the number of instances where that would be required would be too demanding. Still further, intervention is not sufficiently justified based on the fact that domestic sources cannot end the abuse and suffering quickly. We must be careful and considered about how and when we intervene. However, 
I take issue with the moral foundations of Walter's argument. Speaking of practicalities before moral imperatives undermines the value of humanity in general. Instead of the traditional conversations of state sovereignty and the supremacy of states, let's consider the move toward a human rights norm within international relations. There is an increasingly recognized imperative to act on behalf of the human rights of others. Nicholas Wheeler's book, Saving Strangers, offers international relations theorists and practitioners a practical view on the shifting norm within humanitarian intervention. Importantly, Wheeler argues for the primacy of international law based on shared norms. International law can and does create binding obligations on states because of these shared norms and thereby has legitimate authority. For the most part, Wheeler endorses the responsibility to protect and its case for intervention in scenarios where governments are committing genocide, large-scale human rights abuses, humanitarian emergencies, ethnic cleansing. He explains that R2P's adoption moved the intervention discussion from debates about a government's sovereignty to the international community's responsibilities to individuals. This shift demonstrates the more general normative trend which prioritizes human rights over sovereignty. Increasingly, human rights violations are seen as an appropriate justification for intervention. In justifying humanitarian intervention, Wheeler, like Walter, utilizes the just war tradition and sets out criteria which must be met in order to justly engage in a humanitarian intervention. Important for this discussion is his specification of a supreme humanitarian emergency as a just cause for intervention. He explains that setting the parameters for what qualifies as a supreme humanitarian emergency is too arbitrary to be effective. Instead, such an emergency is one in which the only hope of survival is being rescued by those outside our political community, namely foreigners. Now let's return to the scenarios I gave you at the beginning of the presentation. When a natural hazard in the sense of an earthquake, a tsunami, causes extreme risk to life and a national government is not helping to helping its own people to survive, it may qualify as a supreme humanitarian emergency, or indeed a just cause for intervention. Problematically, however, the RTP doctrine does not account for natural hazards. They were purposefully excluded because broad consensus for R2P's adoption could not be reached if it was too broad and was too demanding on interveners. But surely the suffering of those affected by a natural hazard, again, think of our tsunami situation, is not morally different from the suffering of those experiencing genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity, which will trigger R2P, and hence deserves in some way our attention and intervention. My intention, though, is not to get natural hazards included in the list under RTP. There's been discussion on that at international level. I don't want to undermine progress and international consensus on any possible RTP intervention. Instead, I press beyond RTP and show how we have an opportunity to integrate cosmopolitan ideals into new natural hazard intervention. Such a policy is morally required. Now let's go to cosmopolitanism. I want to show how we are and can continue to push towards a full adoption of the human rights norms required for natural hazard intervention. I'm going to talk about cosmopolitan humanitarian intervention and cosmopolitan citizenship. Archibuji defines cosmopolitan humanitarian intervention thus. A military intervention in an area for the purpose of saving peoples from democide or other major violations of human rights occurring and carried out by foreign institutions without the consent of a legitimate government. He goes on to argue that intervention purposely excludes action taken in the aftermath of a natural hazard, which he says is carried out by national governments and without a military component. Archibuji's analysis and explanation of cosmopolitan humanitarian intervention is robust and a necessary contribution to the literature on both intervention and cosmopolitanism, and therefore is the correct place for me to analyze the overlap between natural hazard response, humanitarian intervention, and cosmopolitanism. However, RGBG's assumption that natural hazards should be excluded from cosmopolitan intervention policy requires redress. Archibuji suggests that offers of assistance in the aftermath of natural hazards are indeed often consented to by the affected government. But there are instances in which national governments do not or will not accept foreign assistance. The Burmese government's refusal of, of assistance in the aftermath of Cyclone Nargis in 2008 is a prime example of a government's inability or unwillingness to accept foreign assistance. 
as Archibugian himself argues, humanitarian intervention is too precious a concept to be decided on the hoof or worse still, invoked to mask special interests or designs on power. Hence, we must take account of and prepare for the development of intervention frameworks which are not decided, decided on whims or to mask power plays. Now I'm going to move to cosmopolitan citizenship, which is the recognition of all humans as co-equal agents, justified in pressing their own interests. Indeed, even the weakest forms of cosmopolitanism assumes the equal moral worth of all humans. A cosmopolitan viewpoint will move us away from the common view that those in developing countries are in some way passive recipients of morally required transfers that comes from Cabrera. If we follow Cabrera's argument and view all humans as active participants in their own future, the idea that anyone is a victim and in some way worthy only of our pity instead of our compassion falls away. Humans affected by natural hazards are not victims. We experience and suffer through and from events. We do not become passive recipients, incapable of claiming the goods associated with human rights. In this way, we do not donate to those affected out of some moral duty to support the less fortunate. We should provide assistance, donation or otherwise, because humans continue to claim the goods associated with basic human rights, regardless of the emergency that they face. Fulfillment of negative duties to ensure the basic survival needs of compatriots or foreigners are met is consistent with global justice supported by most forms of cosmopolitanism. Accordingly, all humans can claim the goods associated with the human rights of welfare in a natural hazard scenario. What are these goods? Well, I argue for basic goods a la Griffin, those necessary for survival, food, water, safety, shelter. If you'd like to discuss my case for the human right to welfare and the basic goods that implies, we can return to it in questions. Now, next section, laws and regulations. Let's start with a military intervention and unpack what happens. What might be happening, any kind of emergency, natural hazard, a nuclear plant meltdown, civil unrest hap happens in a sovereign country. The rest of the international community sends condolences, well wishes, and offers assistance in most cases, most traditional cases. The sovereign country can accept or decline those offers. Fine. Chapter 1, Article 2.4 forbids the use of force into an independent state, and Article 2.7 says nothing allows for intervention. Then we have Chapter 7, Article 39 of the UN Charter. Intervention should only occur when there is a threat to peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression. I'm not an international law scholar. Here comes that interdisciplinarity. What I take from this is that it's meant to be hazy. It's meant to give us space for intervention, but only when we really need it. Let's talk about the protection of individuals. It's going to be about human rights. There has to be something that shocks the conscience of, of humankind. Protection of the peace, regional stability, mass destruction within a state. These are the, the same justifications as I talked about on previous slides. So we can intervene, but every other mechanism for responding should have been utilized first. Humanitarian intervention, when it happens, may happen through the Responsibility to Protect Doctrine. The aim of RTP was to establish effective guidelines for future military interventions. Uh, it specifies that international community has a responsibility to intervene into a sovereign state if there's a collective decision that individuals are at risk due to genocide, human rights abuses, humanitarian emergency, or war crimes. Again, when originally discussed, natural hazards were considered for inclusion. However, they were left out of the final doctrine and the resulting norm because it was not possible to garner sufficient political support for their inclusion. International consensus and the eventual adoption of RTP were only possible because it restricted the type of emergencies in which R2P would be triggered. Consequently, natural hazards were purposefully left out. Let's talk about what R2P isn't. It's not legally binding. It is a moral responsibility, an agreement of states to act on behalf of those it has a responsibility to protect, namely human suffering in extreme situations. Again, I'm not arguing that natural hazards is re-added to the list of reasons to invoke R2P. If that bespoke list got international consensus, we shouldn't rock the boat. But does the type of emergency change the value of the person affected, starving, freezing, dying? 
I'm trying to make the point that the humans affected by those triggers for R2P, human rights abuses, war crimes, are not more worthy of aid than those dying because of the knock-on effects of a natural hazard. The decision of which types of emergencies to include in R2P was one of politics and political will. Those affected, dying, starving from a natural hazard do not represent a lesser responsibility to protect. They were just left off the list. We talk about moral human right to welfare. Um, in this session, this is where my PhD gets a little uh, philosophical. I'm not going to go through the philosophical grounding of moral human rights or why humans have rights. What I'll explain in the non-legal sense is that a right is a claim. I claim continued life. You have a negative duty to ensure that there aren't barriers to my continued life. With rights come duties, responsibilities. The least controversial part of my book is that all humans matter equally. With that, each human can claim continued life. I talk about the human right to welfare specifically. Um, we can start from the idea that welfare or well-being is an evaluation of how good or well a person's state of being is as opposed to the good that they provide. Think about what Sen argues. If a person's life goes well and she's in a good state, she has a high level of welfare independently of how useful she is for the society. Welfare, as it is used in the human rights literature, is an internal state of being. It's not to be confused with welfare in the way of housing or social benefits. Skipping a lot of philosophical justification for human right to welfare. We can discuss it if you like. It's enough here for me to say that I use the objective list theory of welfare because then we have things we can actually talk about which are necessary post-natural hazard. Among other reasons for using an objective list, if we used hedonism or desire satisfaction theories of welfare, we wouldn't really be able to practically think about response, water, food, safety, security. My objective list for goods necessary for welfare in the aftermath of an emergency are those goods that are life-saving and life-sustaining. Anything after that, practical reasons, senses, imagination, other species, are all very important and need to be considered as we prepare policy, but only insofar as we know they will be needed after we save people. For example, let's not forget to rescue the family dog, even though our intervention is about saving human lives, preparedness, having a policy, most ethical way forward. And with all of this, I'm arguing that there's a gap, we have human rights to welfare, and we need a policy. I hope by now I've at least whet your appetites and made you consider that it's more morally arbitrary that natural hazards are not a reason for intervention to save affected humans. I've also said a couple of times throughout the talk that preparedness is key. Well, what I'm proposing in this monograph is really just that, a suggestion on how and why we need to prepare for the possibility of a natural hazard to which a national government is unable or unwilling to respond. Returning to Walzer and Wheeler, I base my suggested policy on just war principles. Use sod interventum, or justice in intervening, should be based on foundations similar to those of use ad bellum. Use ad bellum, or justice in going to war, is the umbrella term used to qualify the actions carried out when a state deciding to go to war is just. Taysan offers that a humanitarian intervention is permissible under the following conditions. It is the proportionate international use or threat of military force undertaken in principle by a liberal government or alliance aimed at ending tyranny or anarchy, welcomed by the victims and consistent with the doctrine of double effect. These represent the start of the just war conditions for carrying out a military intervention. So with that, here's my structure for a post-natural hazard intervention policy. It's based on just war principles and is consistent with our standard approach to intervention. First, two specific additions to the traditional list. Preparedness, I've said it multiple times. Naomi Zak argues that the only way to have a truly ethical disaster response is to be prepared with a plan ahead of time. And so we must prepare a plan, a natural hazard intervention policy to ensure that any intervention we may carry out in the future has had the benefit of pre-planning and hence has a chance of being ethical. The other one I wanna add is an inability unwillingness to respond. Importantly, I'm not suggesting that we intervene or send troops in for any big natural hazard, just in general. All of the normal diplomatic channels for offering support must of course be exhausted. 
But there's something about a government unable or unwilling to respond to the needs of affected humans within their borders. A national government shouldn't get to decide who is worthy of assistance. Now on to the more traditional aspects of just war. You'll, you'll know these. Just cause. Jeff McMahon explains that a just cause is simply a good or compelling reason to go to war. Historically, a defender-aggressor relationship exists in which it is possible to, to determine who has committed a wrong. We know that more recently, a just cause for intervention has included human rights abuses, genocide, forced migration. But when we talk about a just cause for natural hazard intervention, we may not always have an aggressor in the traditional sense. Let's think about that unable, unwilling divide again. A government unable to provide for the needs of its people will likely be out of the picture. They may have died in the event. They may be unable to get to a place to organize responses. There isn't necessarily an aggressor-defender relationship in this unable type of scenario. An unwilling government, on the other hand, may be preventing humans or who are owed life-saving assistance to ensure continued life from receiving it. So we must determine if the nature of the hazard, the impact of the resultant disaster, and the inability or unwillingness of a country to provide necessary assistance is a good or compelling reason to go to war. Proportionality. When going to war, the intervener must pr prove that the use of force is a proportional response to the aggression being committed. Concis explains that this principle is simply a matter of weighing the consequences of the various military options that are available. For example, using nuclear weapons against a state that is using outdated conventional military equipment to defend itself, not a proportionate response. Proportionality instead is about using the right amount of force so that aggressions stop. McMahon explains that proportionality is a separate criteria from just cause in that it's wholly about scale, magnitude, comparable importance. In this way, proportionality is the measurable aspect of just war theory. Proportional post-natural hazard intervention would involve the right amount of force, maybe just enough to protect the interveners from gangs on the street, say, such that the basic survival needs of those affected are attended to. Similarly, the cost to an intervener's own military and its domestic population contribute to the proportionality condition of just war. A long and costly invasion period may undermine the economic or physical security of the people in the intervening country. Proportionality requires that the citizens of the intervening country are not unduly burdened by the intervention such that it undermines their lives and livelihoods. If it does undermine their lives and livelihoods, the duties associated with the political and economic rights of the people in the intervening country are not being addressed. So any overwhelming aid or force is not just and should not be used in an intervention. Last resort, there'll likely be situations in which a just cause exists and interveners' intentions are motivated by humanitarian concerns. In these situations, the last resort condition requires that all actions short of military engagement have already been exhausted before force can be used. Standard, diplomacy, trade sanctions, other actions that do not use force should all be attempted before military action is taken in response to a post-natural hazard emergency. Right authority. The intervening force must have a right authority for an intervention to be just. Those with legitimate authority to declare war include states and international bodies. Individuals or groups of any sort do not have such authority to wage war, and instead their use of force is usually considered a rebellion or terrorism. The right authority condition can also be understood as a requirement for an international approval for an intervention. When all the other just war criteria are met, the international community may authorize the use of force. We can return, if you like, to how to understand right authority. There is right authority to decide and right authority to do the intervening. Um, both should always be multilateral or collective in line with all other just war principles. Um, right intention. A right intention aims at preserving human dignity and or at creating international peace and security. An intervention should not be driven solely by selfish motives. Accordingly, an intervening state must make the case to the international community that it has a right intention and thus the motive for responding to the cause and taking up the goals must be just. Long-term consequences, reasonable hope of success. 
When considering the use of force, there must be a reasonable hope that the use of force will actually improve the welfare situation for those affected and for international peace and security. A clear operational and strategic plan must be developed before the intervention is put into action. We also have to have an exit plan. If a country becomes dependent on the invading force, the intervention has failed in its attempt to restabilize a state and thus to reestablish international peace and security. If there's no reasonable hope of success, the intervening force is putting the affected population at further risk of death, whilst meanwhile putting its own forces at risk. I'm now going to move on to objections that I have thought about in response to my own argument. So I'm hoping that you're you're at least like going, okay, you know, there's something going on there. That's fine, but have you thought about? So here here are the things that I have thought about. Uh, the the first objection, the biggest objection, the one that comes like right off <laughs> right off the the bat is imperialism, or we can even talk about colonialism. An obvious objection to any intervention is that it's a cover for some other selfish motive. And we see that all the time, right? Greed, power, exceptionalism. But let's remember back to why I suggested that a cosmopolitan approach to intervention is useful at this stage of post-natural hazard intervention policy planning. We have to shift our mindset away from the idea that we are helping victims or those that are in some way lesser than us. All humans can make a claim to continued life, and we have a moral obligation to provide the goods associated with that claim. I can't say that this objection is wrong or misguided. It's absolutely a worry. My response to this objection, though, comes in two parts. We don't have an intervention policy for post-natural hazard, right, hazard response right now. The IFRC, via the um, IDRL guidelines, do already set out how the use of force may be used in response to humanitarian emergencies, and it'll be with the consent of the affected country. So we know that force may be used for humanitarian purposes, and we have restrictions established for the use of that force. A natural hazard intervention policy with similar stipulations and requirements will not put us in a worse place than we are now. Second, proper preparedness means that we can plan for imperialist tendencies of interveners and build in blocks against this. Just because a country has consented to humanitarian relief or offers of assistance doesn't mean it won't come with strings, either hidden or overt. If intervening countries have already been warned against imperialist or colonialist tendencies, they may have less interest in intervening or rather intervening solely for selfish reasons. A policy for natural hazard intervention won't all of a sudden trigger a country to be imperialist. They probably were already. It also won't give it space, give it the space to be imperialistic. Restrictions already apply and should be duplicated in a natural hazard intervention policy. Second impossible objection, detrimental long-term effects of intervention. It's reasonable to argue that an intervention will do nothing to mitigate the effects of a natural hazard on a population. In fact, all the faff of an intervention might actually delay much needed aid. It might further destabilize a country. It might lead to reliance that then disappears when the interveners leave the country. It's right to worry about disaster fatigue and overextending forces in one country such that those forces are not available for domestic needs. But these aren't reasons not to intervene. Let's say our neighbor's house is on fire and fire trucks are ages away. The spray hose that we use to help put out the fire damage may create altogether different damage and affect the backyard as well as the house. I think you just heard the ice, the ice cream man passing. It's evening here for me. Um, okay, so the fire damage may create uh, altogether different damage and affect the backyard as well as the house. But it doesn't mean we don't try to help put out the fire. As long as we're prepared, are proportionate, have right intention, et cetera, et cetera, we should always say it is just and appropriate to put out that fire. Likewise, it is ethical to respond to human rights needs of humans affected by a natural hazard in specific circumstances. Next possible objection, dirty hands. Dirty hands dilemmas are those in which it is not possible to achieve a morally good outcome, saving the life of an innocent, for example, or fulfill a moral duty without simultaneously causing some other harmful or morally bad outcome to occur. I respect that a natural hazard intervention could easily be labeled a dirty hands dilemma. We can save some, do the right thing, and simultaneously cause harm. 
So I recognize the moral blame possibly attached to a natural hazard intervention. But I wanna talk about moral blameworthiness and being less blameworthy than other options. I'm gonna work through a scenario. And this I've linked to a just cause for intervention. Okay, we generally accept the genocide threshold, right? There's some level of mass killing organized by a government under genocide conditions where we say, that's enough, that's a genocide, it has to stop. One of the reasons we find it a bit easier than maybe other types of intervention to intervene to stop genocide is because there's a definite aggressor and a definite victim. Let's consider Philippa Foote's analysis of doing versus allowing. With the genocide, there's someone doing the killing. That's easier to stand against than simply allowing death, to, death due to, say, a natural hazard. As a natural hazard is arguably not something of human agency. A volcano happens separate to anything us humans are doing, right? The government who should be providing assistance is simply allowing death. And that's not as morally blameworthy as doing the actual killing. But they're still both morally blameworthy, regardless of degree. Hasner takes this distinction one step further. He says that the removal of a barrier is an act of doing. So removing a boulder that would have stopped someone falling all the way down a hill is doing something. And whilst that person did not trigger the falling down the hill, the doing of removing the bar barrier is morally blameworthy. Likewise, if a government removes basic goods or prevents them from getting to certain people in the aftermath of a natural hazard, they're doing a harm. Hasner calls this preventing people from being saved. And it might not be as, as bad as genocide or killing a group of people, but it's still morally blameworthy. Tying this all back to dirty hands, and there are two different things not to note here. First, on the blame of the affected country. Yes, there's a great possibility that we will have dirty hands, but there are actions that whilst blameworthy are less blameworthy than others. Being unable to support your people is not as morally blameworthy as refusing to help your people or refusing aid that would help your people. Next, on the blame of those intervening. I argue that not acting, or better yet, not considering the possibility of intervening ahead of time might not be doing the harm but it's definitely allowing that harm, allowing people to starve, to freeze, to die from their injuries. And that carries blame. To mitigate some of this blame, even if the conditions for intervention don't exist in a particular emergency, we should at least create a policy for how and when to intervene. This is less blameworthy of us than not having a plan to act. Next one, next objection, demanding this. Uh, demandingness of response would include financial and human cost over a period of time, the political strain, disruption to the lives of those actually doing the intervening, animosity faced on all sides. Recovery would involve another set of demandingness issues. Consider that post-natural hazard, there may be no infrastructure left in the affected country. With that, the intervener can't really leave until something is functioning. The hazard can cause a destabilization of society. Violence might spring up or come back once the intervener leaves. It might even be possible that there's no functioning state to leave to get on with things. Yep, all worrisome. But in engaging with any bilateral or multilateral policy, countries recognize that there may be some risk. Just as we do not go to war frivolously, we likewise would not engage in an intervention without properly assessing the risks that cause a strategy. Developing an intervention policy will ensure that A, interventions are the exception and not the rule, and B, that any intervention can be done in such a way and with such international agreement that no one country's resources will be used disproportionately. Hence, through the establishment of a framework for when natural hazard intervention is morally required, we can establish the parameters as to when and how such an intervention will be carried out. It can also be argued that the moral urgency of providing food to the hungry or shelter to the homeless after a natural hazard is the same as the moral urgency of responding to a massacre. 
The duty to intervene to save those affected by a natural hazard is no more demanding in itself than is the duty to save those affected by conflict. Creating a norm for natural hazard intervention will increase the number of occasions in which an intervention may be carried out. Yes, but this doesn't mean the number of occasions in which an intervention should be carried out will increase. Political will. We didn't have the political will with R2P to list natural hazards as a justifiable reason for an intervention. We arguably won't have the po political will now. Similarly, in 2006 and 2010, the United Nations International Law Commission published the draft articles on protection of purses, persons in event of disasters. One focus was the primary responsibility of the affected state due consideration to sovereignty and non-intervention. In 2011, drafters focused on including issues associated with the responsibility of the affected state to seek assistance where its national response capacity is exceeded, the duty of the affected state not to arbitrarily withhold its consent to external assistance, and the right to offer assistance in the international community. Eventually, these points were incorporated into articles of the framework, state consent and support of state sovereignty being key. But... The parties to the ILC discussion, for the most part, rejected the idea that there was an international duty to assist when a state was not acting on its duties to the affected people. Political will was once again against the development of natural hazard intervention policy, even when basic human welfare is at stake. This is a political reason for non-intervention, though. It can't be morally justified on its own, meaning beyond those possible objections I've already listed. Engaging political will for this type of policy and eventual intervention will be incredibly difficult, but it's the ethical thing to do, and so we have to do it. My uh, last, the biggest and most notable objection to my argument for the development of natural hazard intervention policy is the issue of sovereignty. I actually write an entire chapter on sovereignty. Uh, an intervention Hence, without the consent of the affected country, because that, that's where we're going with intervention, um, it is said undermines sovereignty and with it all of the stability it provides. A sovereign state has a right to non-interference, self-determination, and international recognition. In exchange, a state provides security and rights to its citizens. This is the way of the sovereignty game. Non-intervention into domestic affairs is a right of a national government, and this has been reinforced over and over. As it pertains to non-intervention for natural hazards, the articles on protection of persons in the event of disasters have said so as well. I have a few responses to the likely sovereignty objection. Uh, first one, in situations where there is a failed state or where a state is unresponsive, sovereignty is already diminished and thus cannot be the reason for not intervening. To be sovereign, a state must be able to coerce its people or at least have legitimate authority over its people. But it's reasonable to assume that a country unable to provide for the needs of its people in the aftermath of a natural hazard will already be considered a failed state. And so that legitimate authority aspect of sovereignty was undermined well before any natural hazard intervention. Think Haiti in 2010. They were 11th on the failed state index, and that was before the 2010 earthquake. A state unwilling to provide for the needs of its people aren't acting on their sovereign duties, providing security, adhering to international treaties. According to Article 40 of the draft articles on responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts, states have a responsibility to maintain the peremptory norm of general international law. Prohibitions of genocide, slavery, torture are such norms of international law, and therefore adherence to basic human rights can be reasonably grouped here under the heading of aggravated state responsibility. So is this sovereignty objection really as strong as we like to pretend it is? The provision of goods associated with the human right to basic survival surely must be appropriately grouped under state responsibility. Hence, if a state is not providing for basic survival, is the state adhering to its sovereign responsibilities? Next aspect of this, uh, international community can provide the same goods as sovereign states, and hence the international community has the obligation to do so when a state is not acting on its own sovereign duties. The human right to welfare is one of those rights for which the duty bearer is first and foremost the state, because they're in the most appropriate position to provide the goods. 
But then the international community has second order duties. The duty exists where the state wants to fulfill it, act on it or not. Someone must act. And the international community already does this. They fine states and organizations for violating international treaties. They provide humanitarian support when a state recognizes that it can't. Intervention, whilst it may work around sovereignty, is still the international community acting on its own obligations to fill in when a state isn't acting for itself. In defending sovereignty, critics of my argument have ignored the fact that the human right to a minimal level of welfare is more important than a sovereign authority. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say human rights are more important than sovereignty. There's no value in sovereign government if the people over whom it is sovereign don't have rights. Actually, intervention, I'll say, can restore sovereignty. A country struggling to provide for its people, those would be a country unable to provide, can be restored to leadership through the help of an intervening force. The international community has a responsibility to protect in situations of genocide, human rights abuses, etc. They have a responsibility to uphold human rights norms. If that's the case, then they likewise have a responsibility to provide for those whose basic survival is at stake in the aftermath of a natural hazard. In close, I've hopefully made the argument that we should develop international policies for intervention and the use of military force to provide assistance in very specific and rare cases when a national government is either unable or unwilling to provide assistance to its people in the aftermath of a large scale natural hazard, even without consent from the affected government, and it would be based on our human right to welfare. To that end, I've provided justification for and an outline of the possible structure of the policy using just war theory. There are, of course, possible criticisms of my suggestion, but these are not strong enough, I argue, for us to carry on with the status quo. We must develop a policy to support those affected by a natural hazard when their government is unable or unwilling to do so. Thank you. Any questions? All right, thank you. Um, yeah, so now we'll uh, transition to Q&A. So if you have any questions for Dr. Tracekowski, please feel welcome to comment in the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. Okay, so I have a question for you. Um, what compelled you to focus your research on this topic and then write a book on your findings? Um, so I focused on it as part of my PhD. So the book comes out of the PhD. That's what that's why the book the book came about. The natural hazards aspect. Um, I think the the um, the study of cosmopolitanism. We sit there and we say, you know, oh, all people matter, but we say, oh, but you know, if they die in that way, they don't matter as much. And there's just something that that. Um, causes an internal conflict for me that it, it's saying that actually those people don't matter as much if they've died in a natural hazard as opposed to a genocide. And so uh, having worked for FEMA, having um, seen like, you know, just natural hazards happen where there's no aggressor, it's an event has happened that triggers and, you know, exploits socioeconomic political situations as they already exist. Um, but it, it's this, okay, well, it doesn't mean those people don't get saved. Then you look at Myanmar, you look at, I mean, here in the UK, the flooding, people need assistance. It doesn't matter that the type of emergency is different. I think it's morally arbitrary. So that's where, that's where it came from. It's a lot of like um, lived experience, a lot of study and just going, there's gotta be something out there for us to make sure that everybody is, um, equally valued and given the same life-saving and life-sustaining support. Um, does the U.S. have any natural hazard intervention procedures or policies in place? And if not, what hurdles do you think need to be overcome for such policies to kind of be adopted? So, um, international uh, human, uh, natural hazard intervention policy does not exist at all, it's, it's, it's against the rules, right? You can offer assistance and clearly, you know, we, we, we talk to the other countries that need the assistance or we think need the assistance. We go, you know, mm, you know, let, let's go this in, but it's diplomatic channels. So that makes sense, right? Um, we don't have natural hazard intervention policy because no one does. Um, 
and domestically, it's we handle it domestically. Um, only recently, are there any kind of um, plans for the U.S. to integrate foreign assistance with consent, having agreed to it, you know, negotiated how it's all going to happen? Um, but that came out of Hurricane Katrina as well. The idea that there might be situations where the U.S. needs to look elsewhere for assistance and possibly accept that kind of assistance. Whether or not it's been used, I, I don't know. But um, but there is that kind of consideration. But international intervention for natural hazards just doesn't exist. And why do you think there's like hesitancy to kind of adopt those policies? It's political will. It's um, it's yet another reason for us to intervene in affairs of other states. It's um, more the more possibilities of creating uh, destabilization. It's the political will. It's the long term consequences. It, it's it's all those good reasons, right? Like, like they're really really good reasons. But I think it's just narrow narrow of us to assume that just because no one has tried to intervene for a natural hazard, that no one will. And I think it's narrow of us for, to say that just because we haven't done it before, it won't be necessary in the future. And the only way to create ethical policy is to actually just create the policy in itself. It, it, it has to be it has to be thought of. It has to be discussed. And um, it just doesn't get the, the political will. And I, I think that that's a political discussion and not a moral one. So that's where I'm pushing it. The last question that I have for you, for people that are interested in this topic, um, what are some books that you would suggest reading? Yep. I'm going to see if I can hand you down to pull them off my shelf. No, I can't. Uh, they're not in front of me or they're behind my, my computer. Um, so Naomi Zak, uh, Disaster Ethics or Ethics for Disaster. Uh, Hugo Slim, Humanitarian Ethics. Of course, Walter's Just and Unjust Wars. Um, and anything by David Held on cosmopolitanism or Lou Carrera on cosmopolitanism. Um, that's kind of the, the triumvirate that I try to, I try to hit. Uh, for humanitarian intervention, natural hazards, and uh, cosmopolitanism. Um, I think it's, um, especially in light of the pandemic, I think that this is a field that is going to start gaining gaining a little bit of um, ground as far as I like to think of it as like ethics in a crisis or disaster ethics. So um, the fact that Naomi Zak has a book, Ethics for Disaster, and Hugo Slim has a book, Humanitarian Ethics, I think these are these are starting. There's not like a whole literature out there yet, but I think there there will be. Um, and if you're interested in an MSc, come to Austin and you can do an MSc in crisis and disaster management specifically, and you'll have me for ethics in a crisis. All right. Um, well, that is all the questions that I have for you, to, for you today. I would like to thank you for joining us this afternoon and all of you who tuned in here on Zoom and Facebook. If you're interested in attending other upcoming webinar events, supporting IWP or applying to one of our graduate programs, please go to iwp.edu. Again, that's iwp.edu.